Hey, everybody. Welcome to the third episode of the Gene Panel Podcast, Quarantine Edition. Um, so Ali and I are not in our usual professional studio, professional setup. Uh, yeah. We're currently, uh, you know, a, f- a few miles away from each other. I'd even say up to... I think that's an understatement. Yeah. Up, yeah. up to like maybe a country away. But maybe, yeah. Possibly. But, um, you know, we got we have the uh, makeshift setup. We have, a you know, the laptop, the microphone, the monitor mouse yeah so while julian got blessed with his amazing yeti i'm using my own headphones right now so please excuse the difference in audio quality from the two sides but regardless you know uh ali's part robot ali's part robot anyways oh am i part robot yes we were scared this would happen (laughs) so yeah so in this episode what we really wanted to talk about is given the current pandemic that's going on with COVID-19 we wanted to discuss it a bit but also talk about viruses in general talk about vaccines and other things that are related to this topic um, and so while we know that we're not experts and you know there are experts in the field that are currently doing groundbreaking research to help with this pandemic um, we didn't think that just because we're not experts, we're not going to talk about it, right? So as people passionate about science, we wanted to talk about this virus and share what we've learned with you guys. Think of and it so as, as a point of it. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Think, 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 think yeah. of it as we're just doing, you know, you're honestly like your research for you and kind of simplifying all the stuff that's out there because there's a lot of stuff that's out there that isn't really explained very well. Exactly, um, yeah. And, and yeah. so as a point of encouragement for you guys, there are a lot of status reports available and or just research papers in general so one that i really liked was the one by Emanet and kramer and they actually published a paper in cell reports um so i would encourage you guys to give that a read but also there's a general availability of papers during this time so um when this pandemic was just starting off cell reports actually um, announced that they were making their papers about covid19 publicly available and so this was meant to in, in a sense, inform the masses and try to get out real information as opposed to fake news, for instance. So um, definitely make use of this if this is what you're passionate about or you're curious as to what a research paper even looks like. So I would definitely encourage you guys to take a look. Um, so a bit from the timeline of this whole situation. So who reported that on December 31st, 2019, which is where COVID-19 comes from, Uh, the Wuhan Municipal Health Commissions in China reported a cluster of cases of pneumonia. And pneumonia is just an infection of the lungs, either bacterial or viral, and it ultimately causes difficulty breathing. And so all these, this this cluster was in Wuhan, um, Hubei. And so based on this attention, scientists wanted to sequence the causative agent. Um, in order to identify what it was. And so on the 12th of January in 2020, so not long after, um, China actually shared the sequence of the virus's genome. Right. Usually when a new virus or new microorganism is found, one of the first thing people do is, is sequence it. But... Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's beneficial because research has evolved in such a way that it's enabled us to, you know, have quick thinking and, for instance, do the basics first, such as create a foundation based off of the sequence. And right. so what the sequence showed us is, well, what did it show us? Well, it tells us how, for example, the virus functions. Um, mm-hmm. For example, we can sequence the genome of the virus, then compare it to 
other known genomes of, you know, maybe similar viruses and be like, oh, look, there's this area of homology or essentially these two regions have a similar pattern of nucleotides. So therefore, they probably act in a similar manner. Um, yeah. So especially looking in particular, the, the ones that make proteins, the, the protein coding sequences, right? Yeah. Um, and this is how we actually knew that it was related to the same uh, coronavirus that caused SARS, SARS yeah. um, earlier. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so initially this outbreak occurred in, I should also mention that sequencing also helps us track the spread of the virus, but that's something we'll get into a bit later. Um, so initially this outbreak was just in China. So at this point, it was just an epidemic. Yeah, an, an epidemic, epidemic just... Oh, you got it? Go on. Yeah, no, you got it. You got <laughs> it it basically just refers to cases that are confined to a specific area. So it's only yeah. local in, in, yeah. in a way, right? And it's and it's cases that occur um, more than you'd expect, right? So for instance, the common cold, if all of a sudden everyone in the country got a cold, that's an epidemic because it's more than what we're used to at any given time, right? right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and then in January 13th, um, there was one case of COVID-19 in Thailand. So this showed that the virus was spreading globally. Um, and so as more and more cases occurred outside of China, um, th- we had a shift from an epidemic to a pandemic, which is an epidemic on a global level. Yeah, a very useful site for kind of monitoring the progress of the virus. And it kind of shows like what's going on in all the countries around the world can be found in on uh, the John Hopkins website, John Hopkins University. You can just just Google John Hopkins COVID-19 statistics or something along those lines. And it'll be and, the, uh, and I'll show it'll up. be the yeah. first thing that pops up. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so I guess one of the first things you want, want to talk about is the sequencing of the virus, because that's very important. Yeah. So, yeah. So, Julian. Yeah. So I think this is your we haven't <laughs> we haven't really touched too much upon sequencing. So for now, we're going to give a very kind of basic understanding of what it is, just so, you know, in the context of the episode to understand why it's relevant. Um, we do plan on covering it later. But for yeah. now, it like it, sequencing basically refers to kind of finding the order of nucleotides. So either in DNA or RNA. Um, you know, and we talked about nucleotides, I think, a little bit in our first episode, episode which kind of refers to the, the adenine, thymine, guanine, cytosine. So essentially finding out the order of all these things. Yeah. Um, right. And um, there are kind of a lot of different ways to go about sequencing. Um, and there's a, a lot of different technologies. Um, and it's kind of a developing field, I, I think, anyways. There's a lot of sure. new things that are being discovered in regards to how to sequence. Uh, but again, we're just going to keep it very basic for, for now. Um, and so the initial sequencing platform, because as I've said before, there are many, uh, that was used uh, for COVID-19 was something called nanopore sequencing, which was developed by a company called Oxford Nanopore Technology. And it's actually a fairly recent development. The company was founded in 2005. So it's pretty new. And sequencing first, sequencing in general first requires that you isolate a sample, uh, DNA or RNA from the sample. So, you know, they took the virus, isolated DNA in however way they did, and then yeah. can then sequence it. Yeah. So, but I don't think they isolated the virus at this point. So I'm assuming they must have gotten some, you know, some culture of, right. of so like a mixture of things that might contain the virus and then they would sequence all those. Right. And yeah. yeah. So, so that after they 
the first initial sequencing of, of the virus that emerged in Wuhan, China. Um, the Oxford Nanopore Company, in conjunction with other labs around the world, kind of developed a set of protocols called the Arctic Protocols. Um, and these protocols helped kind of systemize the sequencing of the virus. So not only did the protocols help provide procedures on how to sequence the virus, but they also provided, you know, helpful tools, chemicals, software, you know, they kind of have kits that kind of help you go about conducting the protocol so that the labs don't have to develop those from scratch in addition to the protocols. So this kind of just helps the labs skip that first step of developing protocols and whatnot just to move along the research. And then afterwards, all the labs can publish all their sequencing results on public databases such as GeneBank to kind of help labs, you know, kind of share the results. And so the use of nanopore sequencing and the public genome database has greatly aided in the rapid sharing of genomic data on the virus, which is a huge achievement since, like I said before, we can bypass the initial step, which is essentially the identification process, um, or at least greatly reduce it so that we can spend more time on epidemiology research, which involves, you know, characterizing the virus itself and also aiding public health authorities to understand the identity of the virus, whether it's changing, because viruses can have multiple strains and even change through time, and also how it's being transmitted. Yeah, because we talked about how we can actually use its genomic sequence to look for, you know, its its spread. Because, you know, one would think that, okay, so now that we've we, we've sequenced its genome, there's no other use, right? So we, we don't need to sequence anymore. But that's not entirely true, because like Julian said, um, a virus can change over time. So maybe we'd like to see the rate at which it's changing, but also we can look to spread its spread, uh, look to track its spread. So for instance, if patient A was infected and then we sequence the genome of the virus from patient A, and then all of a sudden we see patient B, and patient B also has COVID-19, and so we can isolate the virus and then try to sequence that. If we see, for instance, a similar sequence between between the virus and patient A and the virus and patient B, then we can assume that the spread of the virus is linked between these two because they have a similar sequence. So we're assuming that not enough time has passed for the virus to have changed so much that it's not entirely the same. However, if the sequences are relatively different from each other, then we can assume that patient B um, was infected by a source that's not linked to patient A. So in this case, we're creating clusters of uh, patients with similar sequences of virus, and this can help us track the change of the virus, but also how it's being spread. Right. Is there, for instance, one uh, cluster that's unusually larger than the rest? And this can help with epidemiology. Yeah, it helps kind of point out multiple sources of one uh, particular viral strain that has a particular exactly. sequence. And then you can go on to do contact tracing and then uh, isolate people. Well, everyone's in isolation, but if this was in another <laughs> case, you'd look to find the people that patient B has interacted with and tell them to quarantine themselves. But again, everyone should quarantine in this time. So having talked about the sequence of this virus, it's only fitting to next talk about the mechanism and biology. 
uh, of SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19. So when we previously talked about CRISPR, we actually mentioned bacteriophages, which, if you recall, are viruses that infect bacteria. So what's cool is that viruses that infect humans function in a similar manner, meaning that they'll bind something and then they're going to enter the, the human cell. Yeah, so the cell based membrane. on no, yeah. exactly. So based on this knowledge that we have on coronaviruses, because coronaviruses is a, is a, it's an umbrella term for vir- for a group of viruses in general. Yeah, that's sure. You know, a couple of similarities. So it's just a method it, of classifying them makes it life yes. easier in general. <laughs> exactly. So SARS-CoV-2 falls under this group. Uh, so based on this knowledge and imaging data that we have on SARS-CoV-2, we know that the virus actually contains spike proteins on its outer membrane. And this outer membrane is called an envelope. So if you can just visualize a ball with a bunch of spikes pointing out of it. And you've probably or, seen the picture before because it's like almost all everywhere. Over. Yeah. Yeah. So what's important about these spike proteins is that they're needed by the virus in order to recognize and bind human cells. Well, what is it on the human cells that these bind to? Well, it's a receptor on these human cells known as the ACE2 receptor. And so by binding to this, it's able to recognize the human cell and then enter the human cell. And what's really cool and what I is what I found, for instance, is when I was scrolling through Twitter, I found a professor asking whether we could knock out this ACE2 receptor as a solution for as, as a therapy for uh, COVID-19. Yeah, so that and the then, virus can no longer recognize our human cells and subsequently exactly. infect us. Yeah, and that sounded like a cool idea to me anyways. Um, but another professor replied to him saying that if we do, it's going to have severe consequences. So ultimately, knowing the mechanism of something, although uh, the solutions might not be the best, such as knocking out ACE2, knowing the mechanism enables us to pinpoint regions within the viruses, in a sense, life, that we can potentially knock out something in order to stop the virus from being functional. Right. And this is the way a lot of researchers kind of develop their drugs and, and, and other related things. They, they look at the mechanism of whatever their target is, and they see what can yeah. we get rid of or mutate or somehow change or alter such that we can eliminate the disease or, the, or lessen the yeah. symptoms and such. Yeah. So a lot of for antibiotics, for instance, that's what they do, although that's one part of it. They can also do things like just randomly trying out drugs. But that's a discussion for another day. So now that the virus enters the cell, it can result in a shift of the host cells, I guess, focus from translating and making its own proteins to now making the proteins of the virus so that the virus can make more of itself. And so what's interesting about the coronavirus is that it's its genome is not DNA, rather coronaviruses, this group of viruses, are actually RNA viruses, meaning that their genomes are made of an RNA molecule. And this RNA molecule is used as a template to make more RNA genomes, or it's used as a transcript, so um, the message that the cell uses in order to read and create proteins. Yeah, so it, recru- um, it can recruit the like host enzymes and proteins that are present within our own cells to make viral proteins for the virus. Exactly. And then in terms of their genome, so RNA viruses, are there's, there's different classes. Some of them have their own proteins. Uh, this is known as the replicase would, that they use in order to replicate their own genome. 
Some just use the host machinery. Right. Um, and some use both. They initially use the host machinery and then they'll use their own. Right. So anyways, so, that's mechanistically how it works anyways. Um, yeah. It's not too different from other viruses, but the uniqueness comes from the specific spike proteins and the receptors it rec- recognizes and, and whatnot. Um, now, how does the virus itself spread? So, I mean, the most obvious form of transmission, and that goes for a lot of other harmful microorganisms, is just person-to-person close contact, right? So if you t- touch someone or, you know, you give them a fist bump and they're infected, then you're probably going to get the disease. Um, if you put it to your face. Though. Right. If you wash right. your hands, you're good. Right. And according to the CDC, the distance that must be maintained is at least six feet or two arm lengths. And you've probably heard this before. Um, but, you know, it, it's pretty obvious to kind of distance yourself from from people. And, it, and, it's, and it's really important because some people may be asymptomatic, which essentially means that they don't show the symptoms that are characteristic of the virus. So they may yeah. seem okay, but, but they carry the virus. So they can still pass it on and potentially pass it on to someone who isn't, who, who won't be asymptomatic, either because they're immunocompromised, because they have some other pre, pre-existing condition or they're, they're older, um, and then they'll, they'll show the symptoms and feel the full yeah, brunt of the virus. Yeah. I should add that this incubation period, so this period in which you're not showing symptoms, is actually what makes this disease so dangerous. Not only is it dangerous because it can be lethal in certain immunocompromised or in the older population, but because there's two weeks in which you're not showing symptoms, that gives the virus essentially two weeks to spread without the host knowing that they have this virus. So that's why it's, yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you do go like traveling anywhere or, or you're out and about for a long time, it, it is suggested that you quarantine yourself for two weeks. I know that when I came back home from the airport, I was... I was basically secluded in my home for two weeks without ever going outside, really. Yeah, yeah um, this this was before, this was closer to when the whole situation right. in Canada wasn't as severe, so we could still go outside. Like, we were going to university at this point. Yeah. Um, so, another yeah. way that people become infected, besides the obvious, you know, person-to-person contact, is from respiratory droplets, which are essentially like minuscule drops of of liquid that that we emit as people. <laughs> so for example, when you cough yeah. or sneeze um, and you breathe that and you breathe in those, those minuscule droplets that you may not necessarily see with the naked eye, you'll, you'll yeah. contract the virus. Also, even through just talking, especially if you know someone who's particularly, you know, articulate <laughs> with their way of talking or they tend to spit out a lot. I know a couple of people like that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that, that, that's another way it can be transferred. And yeah. also uh, the virus can kind of, continue to reside on surfaces. So for example, let's say an infected person touches, um, I don't know, a a refrigerator handle, and then you go and you touch the refrigerator handle yourself, then you will have the virus as well. Yeah. So and I'm not, yeah, I'm not too sure, because I know viruses can't stay on surfaces for too long, but it's still good to be safe. And in, in, some some terminology that they use, for instance, in healthcare for in hospitals, is known as high touch services. So these are surfaces in which are touched a lot, hence high touch, yeah, like door so handles instance, and such. Door, yeah. And so this is why hospitals are actually a very dangerous place. So all because someone thinks they're infected, they shouldn't just go to the hospital because they might not be infected. But because the hospital consists of 
such a high concentration of germs, um, including the virus, in such a confined space, it's very likely that you're going to come into contact with one of these high-touch surfaces. And so you're going to become infected when really all you had is just some headache from staring, watching Netflix too much, for instance. So right. that's why it's very, yeah, you should stay at home and only go to the hospital if you're sure that you have it. Exactly, exactly. Right. Yeah. So related to this is testing. So how do we test for this virus? So initially, I did not know how they tested. And so a really cool thing I found is that they tested by what's known as RTQPCR. So it's just some abbreviation that's that refers to reverse transcription quantitative PCR. So let's go through this and what this means. So starting off, you need some sample. So the sample that they use to test is a nasal swab that actually goes very deep inside your nose uh, from pictures I saw. So Ew. yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's very weird. <laughs> so you take a nasal swab from a patient wh who may or may not contain the virus because obviously you're testing for it. And then you perform reverse transcription to turn RNA into um, DNA. Right, so we know that transcription normally goes DNA to RNA, so reverse RNA to DNA. Yeah. And why do we do this? Well, the virus's genome is RNA, and we can really only do the next step, which is PCR, and I'll explain what that is. We can only do PCR with DNA, so we need to convert it into yeah, DNA. We need to take an extra step before we actually perform the, the testing itself, yeah. I guess you could say. Yeah, and so what PCR stands for is this, is this is just the cornerstone of high school biology. This is like the boss battle that you learn at the end. <laughs> well, it was for me anyways. Yeah, yeah. PCR is just the, poly the polymerase chain reaction. Essentially, what you're doing is that you're amplifying a piece of DNA. Um, so this is especially useful. So one analogy I give is that for crime scene investigation, you might have, for instance, the blood, right? Some, some sample of blood. But within that sample, there's not enough DNA for you to, for instance, identify whose blood that is. Mm -hmm. So what you do is that you perform PCR and you take the DNA that's in there and then you just amplify it. So you have a lot of DNA to work with now. And then that's essentially what PCR is. And then quantitative means that we can use PCR as a means to quantify the amount of RNA. But in this case, what we want to quantify is binary. We either want to see if it's there or it's not there. Right, so it's, it's either a zero right. or a one. Yeah. Right. So in short, if I were to summarize this, I would tell you that this protocol enables us to specifically focus on quantifying the coronavirus RNA versus other random RNA that is endogenous to the host, meaning that these are just RNAs that are normal to the human body. Right. Um, so we're just testing whether the patient has the SARS-CoV-2 genome or if they don't. And if they do, then they test positive. There are other ways to test for this, but this is just one of the ways that I found was very prevalent and right. um, and something that I could explain. And, the, and the lab technique itself is very easy to do. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, and it's and it's in my opinion pretty relatively fast, right? Yeah, but and and this technique, this RTQPCR, is not wasn't originally used for testing. This RTQPCR is a lab technique that people use for their experiments in order to, for instance, quantify an RNA in a certain sample. Like for instance, looking at an RNA at different time points to see if the levels change. But what's amazing is that we can adapt a 
tech, a technique we've been using for so long to use it for situations like this, which is something that's amazing about how much research has advanced. The, the problem, though, now is, and you've probably heard it with testing, is that it's it's not really it's hard to test so many people at once. And again, a lot of people are asymptomatic. Yeah. So it's hard to even determine whether you should or shouldn't get tested. I mean, at the end of the day, it's you know better safe than sorry. But yeah. this technique requires certain lab equipment. So maybe some labs may not have this or it's in limited quantities, which is why it's kind of hard to test it, or at least by this method. Um, yeah. So there are still um, a lot of kind of work and research going into the testing aspect of it. Um, yeah. Which is you know one of the problems that, one of the main problems that should be solved when it comes to this pandemic. Yeah. If there was just some easy way to just scan a human body right. and it'll tell you if it's there or not. But, you know, we work with what we have so far. And thankfully, we have these techniques. We could very well be in a period that we don't have these. But, yeah, we have that's yeah. what we have to say for testing. And, you know, better to just kind of prevent yourself from even coming into contact with the virus than having to do this. So I should kind of point out some of the safe practices you take. And you, you've... You, Definitely, I've heard some of these before. Yeah, but um, like, like Justin Trudeau is constantly telling us to wash our hands. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, yeah. So since right now there is no current vaccine to at least protect yourself against it, because you know vaccines aren't really for treating it. Once you have it, they're more for protecting yourself against it. They're prevention technique. Right. Exactly. So because there's no current one, the best thing you can do right now is. Well, first off, kind of trying to lessen contact with others as much as possible. And that's the you know obvious one you've heard a million times by now. But it is true and it is effective, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. And um, I should mention here that all because, you know, someone's been in quarantine, for instance, for two weeks, that they're safe. But the fact of the matter is that we're not constantly staying at home. So while I may be staying at home, for instance... Or my brother may be staying at home. You know, one of us goes shopping, right? And so when we go shopping, we're exposing ourselves to the virus. So there's still a chance that even though we've been quarantining for two weeks, we go out and then we have to quarantine for another two weeks. Right. So which is, which it's is, best to stay safe. Right. But also, if you do have to go out, then you can still avoid as much as possible, again, by implementing the six feet, the six foot, uh, six feet distance apart rule. Uh, among yeah. other things, uh, a lot of people are wearing cloths or masks that cover your mouth and nose. And when you know, when you go out and shop or whatever, also yeah. kind of using gloves. Though I will say, um, if you do use these things, and I, and I know I don't know how it is for you, but I know where I'm from. There are places and areas where they are basically saying that you have to wear a face mask if you go outside. So at this point, it's oh, like and, is there like a certain place? Yeah, like they'll fine you or, or something. But no, no, isn't like like when you go into supermarkets? No, or is it just yeah, yeah, no, whenever, whenever, no, whenever you go outside at all, you have to wear. Oh, you have whenever. to, yeah, but you're whenever. yeah, but you're, in, but you're in the U.S., so it's yeah, it's it's a little there. different. So yeah. yeah, yeah, it's different. Yeah, but um, anyway, but because that is becoming more prevalent, I think it's important to note that um, there there's still a high risk of you getting the virus, and honestly, you you might even increase your risk, and I'll I'll tell you why in a bit. Actually, I'll tell you why now. Why am I saying in a bit? <laughs> but I was listening to this um interview with a medical professional and his opinion and take on wearing face mask and and he does say that it is helpful wearing a face mask is helpful in preventing the spread of the disease because 
Um, it, it's mostly for people who are already infected, right? So that when they do cough or sneeze or even just even talking, they don't put out the respiratory droplets that I mentioned out earlier out into the open um, so that people who aren't infected get the disease. But a lot of people are kind of not used to wearing face masks. You know, we're not, not, you know, not all of us are nurses or doctors, right? So we're not really accustomed to using it. And so what many people do is that they'll kind of adjust their face mask every so often because it gets itchy or they'll, mm. you know, bring up their hand to the face mask and, or, or do whatever, right? And, and that just kind of ruins the whole thing and actually even makes it worse, right? Because what if you did, what if there are some particles sitting on the face mask and now you put your, your hands all over it? Well, now you actually have it, right? Yeah. And, and same goes for wearing gloves. Um, so there's, there's this thing called cross-contamination, which you may or may not know, but it's essentially a process by which harmful substances, in this case, you know, the virus responsible for COVID-19, um, by which by which these substances kind of transfer from one medium to another. So let's say you're out shopping and you're, and you're wearing gloves, right? You're wearing gloves because you think it'll protect you. So you go to Costco or, or whatever, and you're buying stuff using your gloves, and then you know, you want to check your phone. So you go and you text your best friend or, or whatever. And now whatever it was that you're touching is now on your phone. And then let's say you get a phone call and then you bring the phone to your face. And now whatever was on the phone is now on your face. So yeah, if you do wear these things and wear gloves, make sure to kind of be aware of, of cross-contamination and not kind of, you know, touching things that you would otherwise use on a daily basis so as soon as you're done mm-hmm. with whatever, and obviously make sure to dispose of them. I've I've heard of people, and I've seen pictures of people living leaving the gloves in like parking lots, and that's obviously not okay. Um, so yeah, make sure you dispose of them. Yeah, um, and then in terms of washing your hands, so obviously oh, yeah, we know that definitely. we need to wash our hands, but uh, the reason behind this is that we I mentioned that uh, SARS-CoV-2 a envelope around it and so this is just a membrane around the virus mm-hmm. um and so by using soap soap is special in that it serves as a detergent that can destroy this lipid layer and so by making the virus naked you're essentially making it vulnerable and essentially destroying it so right. that's why they say wash your hands the longer you wash it for for the 20 seconds that's recommended you're yeah. increasing the chances of which you're destroying most of the viral particles or all of them yeah, and you and should, yeah. yeah, 20 seconds and, you know, make sure you get all the crevices between your fingers and your knuckles as well. I know sometimes when I go to public restrooms and I see other people washing their hands and they just kind of, not only do they take like five seconds, but then they just, they don't even wash the backside of their hand, you know, it's kind of like, yep. uh, you know, and that, and I honestly see that more so than, more so than you'd think and, or want to see, you know. Yeah. So but, hopefully that's not happening now. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So that's that. And then. Apparently, there's rumors as well oh, that right. said he was so, going to talk about. So, so, okay. So, we all know, you know, internet is wonderful and amazing. But one of the things about the internet is, you know, anyone can post anything, really. And so, there are a lot of rumors and, <laughs> yeah. you know, quote-unquote fake news circulating about, about the virus. So, if you are wanting to do your own research, make sure that the site's credible, you know, yeah. because there's a lot of stuff out there that's, you know, not necessarily true. And even... People in higher places are saying stuff that isn't true either, which is <laughs> terrible, right? Because some people who may not be as, I don't know, biologically savvy, especially when it comes to viruses, they, they might just kind of take their word for it. Um, yeah. For example, one of the rumors that I've, has, has gained a lot of traction, um, especially here in the U.S., I should say, 
is um, the rumor that you can inject disinfectant into yourself to to clear away your lungs, um, which is obviously not true. Though, I mean, it may not be as obvious for some people, but this is, like, potentially lethal. So make sure you know or are aware that <laughs> there are... Inject. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fun to poke fun at, but you know, it's, yeah. What if you know? There's definitely people who've ended up in hospitals because yeah. of this, you know. So it's not so great in that sense. So make sure you're careful when you're when you're doing your own research. So, one thing that we noticed throughout this pandemic, well, during this pandemic, anyways, is that at one point when we were looking at the John John Hopkins tracker is that China's number of cases beginning began to flatten out. Um, essentially means that, this, this wasn't around March, it essentially means that they weren't getting any more cases, so it was becoming saturated. And now this could be attributed to many different reasons, such as enhanced policing on social distancing rules and making sure that the virus isn't spreading from person to person. Right. But I was actually talking, well, Julie and I were actually talking to Dr. Nodwell, who is a professor, one of our biochemistry slash microbiology professors and so he actually brought up a potential hypothesis which said that this could be because this finding out could be because of acquired immunity so the chinese population became resistant to the virus um and so it's easier to explain why someone would become resistant after they've gotten the disease um because they their body has created antibodies which are used to destroy the disease, essentially. Um, right. But it's harder to explain for people who haven't been affected but became resistant. But either way, because of this acquired immunity hypothesis, one possible treatment or therapy that could be used in the short term is to use the serum of these uh, immune individuals, which essentially serum refers to the protein-rich blood. Right, yeah. blood. Yeah. Um, yeah, as, as a short-term treatment. This has and actually as I, been done. Yeah. I've seen it done in a country somewhere, and I do not remember which it was, but it has been done, like, somewhere in the world, and it, and it worked, and it did work. Yeah, and I, I've heard that people are flirting with the idea of actually doing this, and this is because blood contains antibodies, which the body uses to recognize and fight foreign things, such as viruses and bacteria. And when we were talking about this to Dr. Nodwell, he actually said that this was proposed in the time of SARS, but this endeavor wasn't funded then. So we wouldn't know if it would work, mm -hmm. but apparently there are endeavors to do this now. And this whole concept of immunity actually leads into a discussion of herd immunity. I'm sure a lot of people in this during this pandemic have heard this term before or knew it from before. But herd immunity just refers to the so according to its actual definition is the resistance to the spread of a contagious disease within a population that results if a sufficiently high proportion of individuals are immune to the disease. Um, and this immunity is best achieved through vaccination. So ultimately, if enough people in the population are resistant, the virus cannot spread through these people because a virus prospers when it's able to spread from person A to person B all the way throughout the population. Yeah. But if person A, B, C, D, all the way through Z are immune, then the virus has no means of spreading. So therefore, it's going to die out. Which is honestly one of the reasons why I find anti-vaxxers so it's infuriating. Because it's like, if you don't vaccinate your kid, you're not just 
putting your kid at risk, but all the kids around as well. Yeah. So it's and uh... there was a case that in in one of my microbiology courses, the one we took together, it's mm-hmm. there were there was there was a case study about how a mother uh, was taking her relatively newborn right. to the doctors, and a while after the doctor's appointment, she was she was called by the doctor's office um, because they were doing contact tracing because apparently someone in that office, so the doctor's office, had the measles and they didn't get vaccinated. It was measles or something else, but they had some infectious disease. Right. And so the mother was outraged because her her baby, was at um, risk? because, yeah, they're at risk because they're essentially immunocompromised because the immune system doesn't develop when you're young. It takes time for it to develop. So you can imagine how outraged a mother would be when she takes her newborn to the doctor's office and realizes that someone there could have got vaccinated to prevent the spread of a disease that could put her, that puts her child's life at risk. So yeah, it's very important. I didn't vaccinate, so that's yeah. a problem. Yeah. Right. So speaking of vaccines, let's talk about them. So yeah. first off, I wanted to talk a bit about what they are. So in many cases, vaccines are just attenuated or which means weakened forms of the virus. So they can have mutations that make them less active or have lower pathogenicity. Pathogenicity just means the level of disease causing that they have. So the higher it is, the more pathogenicity they have. So we could mutate the genes responsible for pathogenicity, potentially, for example. Yeah. So previously, the policy was that even a single mutation in one of these pathogenicity genes that could render the virus, um, I guess, not pathogenic was sufficient. But as time went on, people actually realized that it's very dangerous to just have one mutation. So the policy shifted such that you needed many mutations. And this makes sense, right? Because if you think about mutations, just as the mutation can go forward, so you have the wild type version, which is the normal version of the gene, and that becomes mutant, so it becomes inactive, mm-hmm. it could very well naturally revert back into that wild type. So you could get another this... mutation that kind of suppresses the first one, for example. Exactly. So if someone takes this vaccine, but all of a sudden this virus that they inject into their body reverts back into that normal form, then all of a sudden that person has get the, the disease. disease. Yeah. yeah. So you need multiple so that's mutations why... now. Yeah, because the chances of multiple independent mutations are much lower than one mutation. Uh, and yeah, and this mutagenesis, so inducing mutations, isn't targeted. It just involves, from what I from what I know, it involves passing the virus through animals, and then so you put it into animal A, and then you isolate the virus, put it into animal B, with the hopes that in its lifestyle, it's going to get mutations that make it. Uh, less pathogenic. Uh, And then at the end, I guess you would sequence it to see if you have accumulated a sufficient amount of mutations. And then you would Mm -hmm. use this virus because it's inactive. You can inject it into a human without them becoming sick. You mean weakened, weakened, weakened virus. Inactive is another type of virus. Yes. Which good, good segue. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's just my unconscious trying to tell me to segue. So, Viruses can be attenuated, as we said, or they could be inactivated. So inactivation can occur through heat or chemicals such as formaldehyde. And it's exactly what it means. It's essentially killing the virus, if you'd like to think about it that way. 
Um, and so because they're quote unquote dead, it means that they can't function as a normal virus would. So if you inject into the body, the body, the human won't get sick. Right. We say quote unquote uh, because viruses aren't living organisms by definition. Yeah. But they act yeah. like, you know, you can think of it as acting like it is for the, for the yeah. sake of. Inactivity. Because they replicate yeah. in the human body. So, and then another form is just using viral elements. So instead of using the whole virus, you can use aspects of the virus, such as proteins, like the spike proteins. You can use nucleic acids, for instance, like the RNA genome. And these are all ways to train the body to identify uh, components of the virus, either the whole virus or parts of the virus, so that when the virus actually does infect the human body, the body already has created antibodies that recognize these foreign elements and can destroy it. Yeah. Now, many vaccines also contain things that are called adjuvants, and these are just additions to the vaccines that help with things like delivery into the body. So, for instance, if the, vac- if, if the virus is not soluble or if components of the virus are not soluble, it can't pass through certain membranes, for instance. So it won't be feasible to put in the body. So that's why we have to deliver it through lipids, for instance. So putting it around a layer of lipids. Um, But it can also help promote an immune response against the vaccines. This is particularly useful when you're thinking about inactive viruses. Um, And inactive viruses are unable to replicate. So you won't get as strong an immune response because you don't have a lot of viruses. Right. Attenuated viruses, on the other hand, are able to replicate. So you can get a sufficient amount so that the immune response can recognize that it has a foreign infection. So that's why you have to use things that on top of this inactivated virus that can help promote an immune response. Mm-hmm. But again, they're safe because they've either accumulated mutations, so they're inactive or they're weakened, just you mean. <laughs> dead. Yes. Right, 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 right. Weakened. Well, in inactivated in that sense that they can't cause right, pathogens. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And yeah. So it helps develop immunity because you're training the body. It's it's essentially an immune system memory. Mm-hmm. And that's what it is. Uh, and then we looked and then we found a bit about the current progress. So, Right, because wanna... vaccines are like kind of the main solution we're looking for right now. And it's like the, the main goal we're working towards right now is, is the prevention. Of to get the, herd immunity. To get herd immunity and to kind of completely halt the spread of it, right? So we don't have to deal with yeah. any new cases. Um, yeah. Right. So we looked at this um, graphical guide that was put out by Nature called the Race for Coronavirus Vaccines, which, by the way, has a very good graphic. And I think we found it. I mean, it, we found it on Twitter, so I'm sure you can it's just kind of Google yeah. it also, and it'll come up. But if you search, if if you search up Nature's graphical Race for Coronavirus by Ewan Calloway, you'll find it. You'll find it right. Um, and it it states that there's at least seven teams that are using the virus itself, either in a weakened or inactive state. Uh, for example, um, there's this, I believe it's a company, right, called Codagenics in Farmingdale, yes. New York, is currently working alongside a another um, institute called the Serum Institute of India, in India, uh, which is actually a vaccine manufacturer, to weaken the SARS-CoV-2 through mutations, as Ali mentioned before. And it's just so it's one just example. Attenuated. There are many other teams working on it, on the uh, vaccines, and as well as the the uh, viral vector vaccines and, and, and multiple other types of vaccines. Um, yeah. Right. And, and, and it's kind of important to understand that it's not exactly an overnight process. It, it takes a while. 
And I think Ali kind a of long while. put this nicely in. Yeah, so what I, f- what I found is that, so the Milken Institute of Public Health actually summarizes this whole process quite nicely. So you have different stages of vaccine development, and it all begins with the exploratory stage. So at this stage, you're just researching into potential antigens that you can use in order to uh, treat the disease. So an antigen is what a antibody recognizes. So the antigen, as we said, could either be, like a for instance, the protein o- spike or, or something. Yeah, the RNA genome or the virus say. itself. Yeah. Yeah. So we would term these as candidates. Now, once we have candidates, we would take it to the preclinical stage where we use anything other than humans. So, for instance, we can use cell tissues or cell culture. And the difference between tissues and cultures is that tissues are many cells connected to each other. Um, and it's a biological connection. So there's protein adhesion uh, versus cell cultures, which are many cells, but they're isolated. Uh, or you could use animals to test candidate vaccines. But animal testing is a whole other controversy that is being debated uh, currently. And we probably and that, talk about it later. Yeah, we definitely episode. could. <laughs> so once you have these candidates that you've tested preclinically and they show promise, you can submit them right? The important term is submission. You can't just use them on humans uh, immediately. You have to submit them and they're going to be uh, tested. Well, not tested. The data is going to be looked at and you'll have to get an approval for this uh, candidate vaccines. Once you do get, uh, once you do get approval for the preclinical stage candidate that you found, you can take it into clinical development which in it of itself is three other phases. So we already went through two phases. Now we have three phases within another phase. So you can see how intense it gets. Right. But this, this, these three phases essentially include human testing within. So you take human volunteers and then you would test your candidate. Mm-hmm. And then once you do this, you need to have another review of your data, this time on humans. Right. So you need to have this regulatory review and approval which is if the vaccine passes all the phases of clinical development, then you have to send it for approval for manufacturing, which includes some some body having to look at the data that you accumulated over your clinical development. And then they're going to say whether this vaccine is good or not. If it is, then you're going to mass manufacture it and then you're going to take it to the public. And even then you're going to you're going to see and like monitor its progress just to make sure it works exactly so the public so all because you finish the vaccine doesn't mean your job is done you still have to see whether for instance all of a sudden you see people are i don't know growing another head because of your vaccine so you need to really be doing a lot of quality control over it right and so then it's like okay so we'll get the vaccine and problem solved right well yes but there's another one more hurdle that we would need to overcome and that's the distribution of the vaccine itself. So whenever a vaccine is made available, um, at least according to the CDC, um, they're allocated based on the population of an area. So like, let's take a state in the US, for example. So if a state contains, let's say, 10% of the population, then 10% of the vaccines will be allocated there. The problem is that there exists multiple hotspots within countries for example, New York, which may have more cases in proportion to the percent population that the city contains. So how do we go about fi- like go- go- fixing that issue? Um, 
Also, there's the issue of who receives the first batch of vaccines within that area. So obviously, we don't want to distribute based on social class distinctions. That would be awful. Um, A lot of people are kind of debating that the best option is just randomizing it, just kind of doing a lottery for who gets it, who doesn't. And to be honest, I've kind of thought it through. And I don't know, like, part of me wants to think that that's probably the, the best option and that it's not biased. But at the same time, it, yeah. it seems kind of scary to, you know, have your whether or not you get the vaccine kind of be decided by almost luck, really. So, yeah, it's but I mean, I don't know. Did you find other alternatives that they were suggesting besides just randomizing it? Uh, so I feel like that. Not that, that gives aware, everyone not an that equal I'm chance. Yeah, not that I'm aware. Of. Yeah. Yeah. Because if, if it comes to actual distinctions, well, not just social class, right, then you will have outrage in yeah. You know, because there will be bias when there is distinction. For sure. Uh, and so this randomized lottery. So I don't know if you guys watch this. I know Julian and I talked about this, but it's linked to Contagion, which is a movie that people are actually finding very scary parallels to uh, in this time. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, I can just we can just attribute that scary parallel to um, this. Well, previous outbreaks, but also because there's only one way a pandemic can really go. Um, like you, you can essentially predict the events as to what happens. Like you start off with a virus at one source and then it's going to spread. It's going to spread to other countries. People are going to work on diseases. So don't be scared that they didn't really predict the future. Um, yeah. if you, if you haven't watched the movie again, close your ears like the last episode. But, uh, <laughs> if you have, then you'll recall that in this movie, uh, when they found the vaccine, which they made it out to be some miraculous last Hail Mary hurdle thing um, that she just injects into a monkey and all of a sudden the monkey lives. And then once they had this vaccine, they randomized it by turning it into birthday. So if your birthday was on this day, you'd get the vaccine on this day. So it's essentially 365 days, I believe, of getting vaccines. So mm-hmm. that was pretty cool to find, you know, the parallels between them. Right. So, yeah. So we're going to kind of end it off on our own personal experience with this whole thing. Um so as you all know, we're finishing our years in university and yeah. um, the cancellation of classes was a, a rather interesting transition, I would say. Yeah. Um, a lot of people may be acquainted with the Zoom platform that we have to use for online classes. And it's honestly particularly tough on certain classes that involve either presentations, for example. Uh, for us, yeah. the big one was labs, right? Because we're in a, a STEM program that, you know, one of the main things that's so great about it is that we accumulate lab experience, which, you know, is great because it's what we want to do in the future. Right. Yeah. Um, and now that we're not able to go to labs in person, it's kind of defeats the purpose of, of having them at all. And yeah. so we just sucks, got data. Yeah. So we just, yeah, we just get the data of the lab saying like, look, this is what you're supposed to get. Um, yeah. but you know, it's not that great. And yeah. unfortunately, uh, many universities, uh, from some of my acquaintances and friends I've heard, are, aren't dropping tuition. Um, so it's kind of, but but it's a hard workaround because you know the staff still needs to get paid, right? Yeah, um, and also the facilities maintained as well. So it's kind of a difficult conversation to have, and I can honestly see yeah. both sides pretty well. Um, yeah, I honestly couldn't tell you a good solution, but. All I can say is that it's it's definitely a rough situation. 
it uh, is that, what it is and that's just one example that's universities like let alone like you know normal elementary schools um as well as gyms for example like a lot of facilities that involve close contact with people we're not yeah. they're probably not going to be reopened for a long time like it, it could be next, could be next year yeah. honestly like and, and and it makes sense right it's just to take the necessary precautions um yeah but like, if you think about it like i don't know if you've been following the economy but it's been dropping like crazy it's 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 oh, common yeah. news now oh, yeah. but if this continues i think what's going to end up happening is that there are talks of just maybe being less harsh on quarantine because mm-hmm. there is you know the economy to be maintained oh right? yeah we can't just go into another great depression mm-hmm. so that's one thing that people are looking to do it's very hard because oh, yeah. one th- one thing is the health of the people, mm-hmm. but at the same time, the economy. What? Yeah, like when we come out of this, what's going to happen to jobs? For instance, or is is the unemployment rate going to increase all of a sudden? Well, it already has, but is it going to continue even past the pandemic? So yeah. it's very difficult in every aspect. Oh, it's yeah. not just human oh, life yeah. that it's exp- it's affecting human health, also affecting every other facet of human life. Yeah, I know in the um, states at least, there's been a lot of news about people protesting because they care so much about economic stability. And I was just thinking it's kind of, you know, I don't know how to take it because it involves large gatherings of people, right? And it's kind of like, oh. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a difficult situation because, you know, people want to be heard. And a lot of people are kind of reliant on receiving their earnings week by week, right? They don't have like, yeah. they, they can't save money. So they have to kind of live off, you know. Exactly. One, so it's, like it's one day really at a time. And for those people, it's it's terrible. Um, yeah, I, I know that in the U.S. they're giving um, the smaller companies some help, but I know with the larger companies, they're not really receiving much of anything. Yeah. And I've seen some very strict regulations on workers, for example, receiving sick leave, um, you know, which entails okay. in, which entails you taking days off, but still receiving some pay um, yeah. in order for you to acquire sick leave. I know for one really big company it required that workers show proof that they test tested positive for the virus which you know you may which think is... you may think that that's like oh yeah well you know that seems fair but the problem is in places like new york which is a huge hot spot for people and there's a lot of people trying to receive you know go to hospitals and and, and, and get tested it's kind of hard to just say okay go get tested you know like it's gonna be difficult to do that like like we said it's yeah because you're in a hot spot Mm-hmm. Um, one, you have to be very, very careful because essentially everywhere is going to be contaminated practically. So yeah. even if you're not infected for you to go outside to get tested, it'd be very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just one aspect of it. Yeah. But uh, with, with, with hotspots, I'd say that one of the places, like some of the places that need to be really closely monitored would be places like potentially India, for example, because the their culture and their lifestyle is conducive to being in close contact with a lot of people um yep. for example in mexico also um there's a lot of kind of like small villages or, or pueblos where people are kind of they, they have to go out like that's their lifestyle like if they don't go out they, they won't acquire their daily needs or places that require public transport or places that lack drainage systems for example yeah, yeah. that's M- very maybe important. right now they're fine but as soon as the virus starts spreading to those areas, it could potentially be a disaster and they could become hotspots themselves. So Yeah, because one, yeah, one of the reasons in like earlier times, so in like the 18th, 19th century, well, early 19th century, uh, early 20th century, I should say, um, one of the reasons that 
there was a lot of disease accumulating is because of the lack of good sewage system. So people weren't really cleaning. They were they were they weren't living in clean environments. But you reached and you got to this golden age of medicine, partly because of better sewage systems. Uh, and so if there are certain places that still don't have this, then it's going to be very hard on them. Uh, and then another aspect is that if you look at these these trackers, right? So you see certain nations. For instance, I was looking at Yemen with a friend the other day, and you, you think to yourself, oh, they don't have a lot of cases, right? So that's what one conclusion one can come down to. But you also have to think about the lack of testing of these populations. So these populations could be suffering, but because they're not being it. tested, yeah, we just don't know about them. So we're not empathetic towards such nations. So it's very difficult during these times, especially given how limited testing can be, especially if you've heard in the news um, how limited it's been. But yeah, so we just all have to play our parts and just deal with it. I know yeah. Julian, yeah, because I, I know when you went back to the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, when, when school was just shut down, like you were talking about the airport right. situation. Deserted, absolutely deserted. Nobody. There were six people on the flight, but um, it is what it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's just very dangerous. So, again, that's yeah. just been our personal experience with this but hey on the bright side the vaccine progress is something to look forward to i would say yeah you know the the vaccine is the the end all be all of of this whole situation or any sort of treatment and labs are working on it right and and the great thing about our age is that with the with the internet and and data and the availability of public databases is that scientists can communicate with each other across the world and people are being very open with their findings and the results so you know it's only a matter Again, of yeah. time, really, with this thing kind of blows through, hopefully. Yeah. And, um, and these these things are all made available, these research papers, so definitely give them a read. Yeah. And another encouraging note that I have is um, vaccines and drugs especially, they don't have to be de novo. They don't have to be some new compound that someone's made. A lot of times, drugs are just, you know, for treatments that we have, are just modifications of drugs that we've used in the past. So. Yeah. Um, in, in the paper by Amanat and Kramer, they talk about two specific drugs. I don't remember the name, yeah. the names of them, but there were two drugs that we've used for. I know, yeah, they, they've used them for past viruses. And so we can modify them or just use them to see if they're good for, um, good for treating SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19. Uh, and another good thing about that is because they've already gone through testing those drugs, you know, health-wise, there's less testing to go through now, so it's going to be um, a, a shorter progress in terms of drug development and vaccination. So again, just stay hopeful, stay safe, um, check up on friends and family, especially those immunocompromised and those that are sick. Of course. Continue to wash your hands, and yeah. This has been one of our longer episodes, probably is the longest one we've had so far, so thank you for listening and staying with us for this long. And like Ali yeah. said, stay safe, um, stay indoors if, you know, if, if, you, if, if you if you can if you don't have to go outside if you can yeah, yeah. and uh yeah. And yeah we'll we'll see you guys next on the next episode of the gene panel podcast goodbye guys